1: and that raises your cortisol levels. And when your cortisol is high, it's also going to affect the makeup of the gut microbiome and you can start seeing shifts. So now you've got high cortisol shifting the gut microbiome. You have high stress causing increase in gut permeability. A lot of times when there's high stress, you lose vagal tone. Vagus is, is the mo- probably the most important nerve in terms of controlling what's happening in the gut. And when you're stressed, You shut off that Vegas.
0: Hello, my beautiful Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Stima. And this week, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Vincent Padre, and we are talking all about the gut and the microbiome. A little bit about Dr. Pedre. He completed his pre-medical training at Cornell University in 1995. He was honored as a Cornell National Scholar, which is the highest honor given to entering freshmen. He attained his BA in biology with distinction in all subjects, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, He's what we call in Canada a keener, uh, went on to receive his medical doctor uh, degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine in 1999. Dr. Padre is a board-certified internist in private practice in New York City, and he's been doing so since 2004. He's a clinical instructor in medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, as well as being certified in yoga and medical acupuncture. So our conversation today was surrounding his new book. It's called The Gut Smart protocol, and it's basically how we can fix your gut and fix your body. So we talk about these seven categories of leaky gut, so how the gut relates to the skin, to our airway and our pulmonary system, the brain, the joints, energy, metabolism, and immune system. And we talk in depth about Skin health and how leaky gut can show up as acne and or hives, eczema, seborrheic dermatitis, etc. We talk about our nasal passages, the sinuses, the trachea, lungs, and how that can be related to gut function. We talk about metabolism, um, the connection between the gut and obesity, the connection between gut and insulin sensitivity, antibiotic use, and the length of dysbiosis in the gut post consumption. Very compelling argument for thinking about proactively thinking about microbial diversity. And we discussed some of the verticals that Dr. Pedre wants us to be thinking about for promoting microbial diversity in the gut. This is gonna be a great conversation for anyone that you know of, maybe yourself, that has gut issues. I mentioned in our conversation um, that it seems like all, uh, you know, there's a meme that I saw, all hot girls have gut issues. (laughs) I don't know if there's any truth to that. However, uh, if you're listening to this, you probably are at least a hot girl in some capacity. um, And hopefully this is gonna give you some tools for how you might think about optimizing gut function, uh, reducing cramping, GI distension, bloating, constipation, etc. So, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Vincent Patrie. I am a huge fan of the Bio-Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next building, recovering health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such Free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D R I N K L M N T dot com forward slash D R E S T I M A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right. Dr. Vincent Pedre, I am just thrilled, really, to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome.
1: I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this for a long time.
0: (laughs) Oh, and we have, we were talking in the pre chat, we have a lot of mutual friends and we've been in masterminds uh, together, just not at the same time, but definitely have a lot of, there's a lot of overlap in terms of our community. And I'm just really so excited to connect with you. And we're talking today about your new book, The Gut Smart Protocol. And we're going to have a really robust conversation on the microbiome, which is something that we've explored on the podcast before, but I think that you are uh, really world-class in terms of your ability to explain what's happening. And then maybe more importantly, it's always good to have theory, but then, you know, the most important thing is after we know the theory is what do we do, right? So the action items and the actionable steps on how to heal uh, gut issues that we may be dealing with. So I'm really excited for our conversation today.
1: Me too. Always happy to talk about the gut and the gut microbiome.
0: Awesome. So let's start with, you know, I think the obvious um, when when we're talking about gut issues, there are, and you talk about this in the book, there are these gut-centric symptoms. So things like cramping and bloating and abdominal distension and maybe constipation and things like that. Yeah. Which we can all sort of identify. Maybe after we've eaten a meal, and even sometimes chronologically, if you experience those things, two or three—you may two or three days after uh, you eat something, you may not even sort of chronologically link it back to a food that you've eaten. But one of the things that I thought was so unique about the book was this idea of different categories of leaky gut, which is something I haven't seen before. I've, I've, we've had other, as I mentioned, we've had other um, guest experts on the show around gut, the gut microbiome. So maybe we can double click on a few of them. First, let's maybe talk about what are the seven categories of leaky gut. And then I would love if we could start maybe talking about skin as well.
1: Yeah, skin is one of them. So we've got the gut skin connection, gut brain, gut joint, gut immune system, metabolism, energy, and airways. And the gut really affects all of these different organ systems in many different ways. Um, I would actually even join throw in the bones there uh, with yeah. the joints because the your gut health as you go into menopause, or for women, is going to also affect uh, what's going to happen with bone loss as well. So the gut, it's easy to think about gut symptoms as things that happen in your gut. But I think what I really want to get across to people with this new book is that your gut affects other systems in your body, even without having any gut symptoms. And I think that's really important because people may think, well, I don't have any problems with my digestion. I poop regularly. My poops look fine. But they have skin rashes they're breaking out in acne they get migraines they, they get they have all of these other things going on that seemingly aren't related to the gut but but are actually rooted in gut health
0: which i think is going to be kind of shocking for some people because like i was saying we all can say oh distension diarrhea constipation altered bowel transit time or quality of the stool like there must be a gut issue But when we start talking about acne, rashes, hives, I don't think that the first, you know, you might, you know, you might consider going to a dermatologist, let's say, if you have, you know, pervasive acne, or you have psoriasis, or, you know, dermatitis or something. Uh, We don't necessarily, and I would probably argue that many dermatologists are also not going to connect that to potential gut health. Oh,
1: I I wanted to piggyback on that. And And just mentioned um, so early in my career when i was just starting to become a gut expert i had a patient come see me who was breaking out in hives and she had been to top dermatologists in new york city and you know i was reading this and thinking okay this person has been to all the best dermatologists like what am i going to do as a you know functional medicine practitioner you know, you always feel kind of a little nervous, like, oh, my God, this person's been to seven doctors. And now they want me to solve the problem that no one else has solved. And so she was breaking out in hives regularly. No one could figure out. They were giving her all sorts of topical steroid skin creams. Again, it's the, it's the top-down approach versus the bottom-up, looking at the roots versus just kind of like painting the leaves green, making the tree look pretty but not really solving the underlying issue that's in the root system itself. And one thing that we do in functional medicine is we always listen very carefully to the history, but also understand the pathophysiology of skin issues, which a lot of them, I call the skin your outer skin and the gut your inner skin. And there's a huge significance to that because in embryology, when the skin develops, in the developing embryo, it folds, the outside cells fold inwards, and they create the entire tube system that becomes the gut and the airways. So the inner lining of our gut is actually very, like, historically from your your evolution, from your, your growth from a single cell to multiple cells to a little fetus to a baby. Actually, originate from the same cells that became your skin,
0: and we've always been taught. Like we've, all, I've, I've always looked at the lumen, let's say, so the lumen of the gut as technically still the outside of the body. It, it's not actually until the materials pass through the uh, the gut barrier, let's say, or the gut wall, where it actually moves from the outside to the inside of the body. Would you, yeah. would you say that that's? I your call idea? it. I call it our
1: inside outside world you know, because it's inside of us, but it's really the world outside. It's what you put in through your mouth. Everything that you're exposed to comes in there and not everything gets through. And then you poop out all these metabolites and toxins and things, you know, your body's protecting you and trying to get rid of things. So in this patient, she happened to be from Ireland. And so she was breaking out in hives. And I thought, you know, there's really high incidence of celiac disease in Irish people they they a lot of them carry the celiac genetics mm. and so i tested her for celiac genetics and she tested positive um i i think it was hla dq2 i'm trying to remember if she i think she only had one not both and it was like twisting arms but i convinced her you know we're not going to give up gluten forever let's just do it for a month <laughs> let's just let's just take gluten out of the diet for a month, let's see what happens with your hives. Well, at the end of the four weeks, hives were practically gone, and then she tested, and the hives came back. So now we knew that. So the she trigger.
0: reintroduced gluten. She reintroduced yeah. gluten into the diet. She reintroduced and
1: gluten, and the hives came back. So there we, you know, there we have the test, the the proof. Because really, the proof is the elimination and the reintroduction, and seeing and observing how the food affects your body. And on the reintroduction, the hives came back very quickly after reintroducing wheat. And we knew you're going to have to be gluten-free. Plus you have celiac genetics. She didn't want to go through an endoscopy, which I think, you know, is the gold standard for diagnosing celiac disease. Uh, but I understand sometimes people don't want to have a procedure. And if the end result is going to be the same, that you're going to be gluten-free regardless of what is found because already now we have a measure of how the gluten was affecting her with the hives it wasn't really worth going through the endoscopy she already knew she had the genetics so gluten free diet cleared the hives no more steroid creams and you know there I was at the bottom of a chain of seven different dermatologists that she had been to
0: right who probably I mean, and I, I love, you know, you're a medical doctor, of course, have many friends who are medical doctors, We're just like, it's just not taught. It's, ju- it's just not taught in school that you might have a skin issue, let's say, or, you know, in the book you talk about, and I'm going to pronounce these incorrectly, so please redirect me here, but the actinobacteria and proto proteobacteria more proteobacteria. abundant in the guts, let's say, of individuals with acne than those who yeah. don't. So you can see that there's this you know, I don't know how you feel about calling them good and bad bacteria. I like to call them like opportunistic bacteria. (laughs) You know, maybe there's these, there's these bacteria that flourish in an environment where, uh, maybe the diet is not optimal. As you were saying, there could be a trigger that comes in from, um, from the diet that causes, that allows for an, an environment for the proteobacteria, let's say to to opportunistically sort of take over um we're, it's just not taught it's just yeah the the
1: the whole concept i think needs to be challenged cuz it's really the summation of what's happening in the gut and i honestly think it's much more complicated than what we think uh, because yeah and and i like to use good good bad just because it's simple but opportunistic is is another great way to describe it and, and also for people to understand that there are a certain set of bad guys in there, in a healthy person, and they're probably serving some sort of purpose, almost like a hormetic stressor, a good stress that kind of keeps the entire system in balance, the same way that you've got this complex ecosystem in a rainforest where you've got predators, you've got those that are preyed upon, you've got like a lot of different things that fit into the ecosystem. Same thing in the gut. And and what really, actually, what what started changing my opinion on this is reading about the Hadza, and, and then actually going and visiting the Hadza, but looking at the studies that have been done on their gut microbiome, which is very different from ours for a multitude of reasons. Uh, but for those who are listening, the Hadza are, are hunter-gatherers that are still living in the traditional way that their ancestors lived a 1,000 years ago. And hunting and gathering might sound like something really far and distant, but if you look at human evolution dating back 35,000 years, whatever, 50,000 years, 95% of our history, we've been hunter-gatherers. It's only in the last little part of our history that we've actually domesticated animals, started creating, uh, you know, um, agriculture, like growing plants, not foraging. So they, they're a time capsule into what the human gut might have looked like way back when. And they haven't, for the most part, I'm going to say like 98% haven't been exposed to antibiotics. It's possible that they they are aware of the modern world, but they still choose to live in their traditional ways. And the reason I bring them up is because they have certain bad bugs in their gut, which if they were in introduced into a Western person's gut, probably would cause all sorts of disease. One of them is a trypanema, uh, more in the women than the men. And trypanema is the type of bacteria, the spirochete, that causes syphilis. Hmm. It's, uh, it's a bit, And it also causes a really um, ugly, deforming skin condition. But in them, it doesn't cause anything. And it's actually serving a purpose because the tryponema have the ability to break down a lot of plant fibers, xylans, celluloses. And because they ha- eat a very high fiber diet, so somewhere in the 40 to 50 gram range, maybe a little bit higher, Whereas in comparison, so for somebody listening, the regular Western person is eating about 10 to 12 grams of fiber a day. So they're up to 40, 50 grams per day, and they're eating some really difficult to digest fibers that require these, quote unquote, bad bugs that have this special ability, but somehow their system is able to keep it in check so it doesn't do bad things it actually does something favorable for them so that's why i think our our viewpoint of what's bad good and and what's actually going on inside of that ecosystem i think it's in in its infancy stages i don't think we f- fully understand
0: it's contextual right so for this tribe let's say it might be very beneficial to um i can't remember the name of it i apologize but that that particular no oh, not the, the hot sos, but the trypanema yeah so the tryponema. you know it might be very beneficial for them to have this trypanema bacteria and it serves a purpose but for a western you know an american canadian you know someone from europe going to visit this tribe this is going to cause all sorts of chaos and so i'm i'm curious when you were there did you were you were, were you sick were you were eating their diet and sort of living i'm i'm wow. assuming you were observing them yeah, we, went, we went we went hunting and-,
1: and gathering with them and uh i saw them dig up a root vegetable out of the ground and then cut it open it was it, for for people to relate to what this looked like It was kind of like, looked like a sweet potato, but the inside had the texture of a jicama. So very watery, crunchy. You could eat it raw. And they usually chewed it, and then there was whatever fiber remained. They would just spit it out. So, of course, I'm out with my group and and the Hadza, and they're offering me this, and I'm not going to refuse it. And also, I'm kind of curious, like... Like, yeah. wow, we just dug up a root vegetable from the ground and we're eating it.
0: Like no sauteing wow. it, no oil. No, no, yeah. no yeah. cooking
1: it. This raw. We also ate raw honey with honeycomb and, and everything. That's and cool. uh yeah, our uh, my gut was not very happy a couple of weeks later when I found out that I had some parasites <laughs> that I had acquired probably from Africa because we're, you know, our Western gut is just not not ready to handle those things Mm -hmm. and and the gut does the gut microbiome is a reflection of the diet that we eat and so it isn't it is in a way it's an adaptation to our lifestyle depending on what our lifestyle is the gut microbiome shifts and it can shift in in bad direction and it can shift in a good direction the interesting thing is that whenever it's shifting you know, and the shift can happen as soon as 48 hours. You know, if you, if you go on a fast food diet, burgers and french fries and soda within 48 hours, and say you ate that every day, within 48 hours, your gut microbiome is starting to shift to the types of bugs that want to eat that type of stuff. It can also shift in the other direction. And this is what sometimes trips people up is because. You start eating healthy and then suddenly you feel bloated right. and it's because you're feeding different bugs in there and they're producing gas maybe they are also kind of claiming territory and they're outcrowding other bugs and they're causing some die-off as well so any dietary change uh, i think in the western world we tend to be kind of all or none like you know you go from eating zero vegetables to i'm gonna eat like 10 different vegetables every day. I'm gonna drink
0: the sauerkraut juice and I'm gonna, yeah, every, every, it's 100%, it's zero to 100, yeah.
1: And and really, if you're making that type of change, especially if you're bringing in more plant-based foods into your diet, it should actually happen over the course of four to six weeks where you're allowing your gut to slowly adapt to the changes because your gut microbiome has to shift in order to help us digest those foods. So I mean, the other thing we learned from the hot side is that the the amount of enzymes that we make as humans, it's not enough to break down every single food that we're eating, that we actually need the uh, the plant based fibers.
0: So I love what you said about the 4 to 6 weeks introduction because I think it gives permission for some of the type A personalities that may or may not be listening to this podcast right now who are going to, you know, buy all the, you know, they're going to buy all the fiber soluble, non-soluble, like I said they're going to be drinking the sauerkraut juice along with the sauerkraut and the kimchi and all the things and then they're going to have they're going to have some they're going to have another problem, which is going to be the gut is not going to know what to do uh, with all of these introduction of new bacteria and fermented foods and stuff.
1: And and really the the one thing that will happen is you'll get bloated, and you'll think, well, now I, you know I'm eating all these healthy foods, I don't feel well. And there was a study that I talked about in the book uh, done at Stanford University, where they looked at a fiber rich diet versus a high fermented foods diet and in the they took two two groups of about 18 people each and they had them one group eat 5 to 8 servings of fiber per day which amounted to pretty much getting to about 40 grams of fiber you know typical person again being down somewhere in the in the teens in their daily intake and then the fermented foods group, they increased their, their intake of fermented foods by f- to four to six servings per day. A lot of it was through vegetable brine drinks. So like a sauerkraut juice or something like that. So they could get to those four to six cups. It was a lot, but they increased it slowly over the course of four weeks. And during that time, they, the participants did feel at times a bit more gassy, a bit more bloated. And once their bodies got used to it, actually the bloating, the gas reduced, and they were still in the higher dose of fiber or the fermented foods. Mm-hmm. So there is an adaptation time because I know a lot of people, there are so many people out there suffering from bloating for a you know wide range of issues. And if you look up, like bloating is the probably one of the most common complaints that people go see their doctor about.
0: Yeah, it was funny. As I was preparing for our conversation, uh, Instagram must have been listening to what I was talking about, and I saw this meme that was something. It was something like, you know, if you're, you know, ho- if you're a hot girl, then uh, you know you have stomach issues. It's like all all the hot girls have like gut issues. That was sort of like the the gist of the meme, and I was like, oh, huh, I wonder if there's any. I wonder if there's any truth to that. Like, I wonder. And, you know, when I think about, let's say, my own history, um, I used to, I think I was telling to you in the pre-chat, um, had lots of, um, actually, no, I don't think we touched on it, but I had, um, I had, as a child, lots of ear infections and throat infections. So I was always given amoxicillin, like the pink stuff. Sometimes it was banana flavored, but I always opted for the pink stuff. And so that was a recurring theme. And then when my son was got my first son he must have been maybe six or seven months old. I had just this persistent cough that I couldn't get rid of. the doctors all were like, oh, it's just a bad virus, don't worry Do don't worry. it ended up being pneumonia almost killed me um, oh. I had to take this monster you know my I remember my doctor calling it like the hummer of antibiotics so it was just this really strong um, antibiotic and I couldn't after after taking that, Um, I remember very distinctly, I would always get these upper respiratory, like I would always get these upper respiratory infections that would almost predictably turn into bronchitis, which would of course necessitate the need for more antibiotics and more antibiotics. And the only thing that got rid of it, the only thing that I feel only kind of kicked it was getting pregnant again with my second child. (laughs) So I know that some people feel like, you know, their immune system ramps up when they get pregnant, you know, to protect the mom and to protect the baby. Uh, some people have, you know, described the opposite. For me, getting pregnant, you know, I've always felt so healthy and so well, uh, and uh, you know, during my pregnancy. So I will say to my my son, Sebastian, I'll say, you know, like, and you saved mommy's life in some ways because I couldn't kick, I just couldn't kick this persistent, uh, and so this is more of the gut airway connection uh, maybe that you describe in the book.
1: Yeah, pregnancy will ramp up your First line of defense, innate immunity, which yeah. is the more primitive part of the uh, immune system. If it was a chessboard, the innate mu- immune system is like the pawns on the chessboard. They're they're yeah. the first to attack, and sometimes pregnancy causes a little bit of a humoral uh, immunodeficiency. So, like your IgGs, your your B T cells, it kind of suppresses them a little bit, which makes sense because. You don't want your body to reject the placenta or the baby that's growing inside of you. So there is, so it, it's almost like pregnancy is a is a split. There is immune activation and there's also immunosuppression happening at the same time. Uh, mm-hmm. Different arms of the immune system are being uh, either activated or controlled and regulated.
0: And it's interesting. Again, you know, we talked about skin. Uh, you know, you talk about the gut airway connection in the book. And sometimes you don't necessarily link persistent upper respiratory infections, bronchitis, pneumonia. And, you know, they actually, you know, they had to take the chest x-ray and everything. And then at the end, they're like, I don't know. We don't actually know if it was bacterial. I'm like, oh, (laughs) Okay, so wow. I, I don't even know if the you know the Hummer let's say that she was calling it you know the, the these very strong antibiotics were even warranted that even that you know maybe they didn't even do anything if the pathogen was viral in origin right because we know that antibiotics don't do anything against viruses they just kill off bacteria
1: the only one that that is a slight exception to that which is which is wild um, and. I just found a couple of studies on this. Uh, Zithromax or the z yeah does also upregulate interferons. So it can somehow indirectly have some antiviral effects, but what you described with antibiotics and recurrent infections is what happened to me as a teenager over and over, two to three times per year being put on antibiotics, getting bronchitis, pneumonia, sinusitis, constantly. And I think the more, and I've seen this with patients that come in and they were put on an antibiotic for an, uh, a sinus infection. and then three months later they're back with a sinus infection again and they're on antibiotics. And the missing link is that you know every time you go on antibiotics, you're affecting your immune system by leveling the playing field in the gut, You're getting rid of good guys along with bad guys. And because of that, you lose an important regulatory point in the immune system because 80% of the immune system is all along the gut lining. So it's command central for our immunity. And so if you want to have a strong immune system, you have to have a strong gut.
0: Yeah, well said. Let's talk Let's talk a little bit about um, metabolism. We talk a lot about metabolism on the show, and I was... And and I would like to specifically ask you about how lipopolysaccharides um, affect metabolism. So first, maybe explain what LPS is. Uh, Dr. Stephen Gundry, who's been on the show, uh, describes them as, you know, LPS, his little acronym is Little Pieces of Shit, which I think is really clever. But of course, it doesn't stand for that. It stands for lipopolysaccharides. So how how does LPS uh, affect metabolism? And then where are we getting that from? And how can we... um, and maybe speak to, uh, in, and we'll maybe we'll we'll navigate into insulin sensitivity um, from this conversation as well.
1: Yeah, they are all tied together. Uh, but LPS or li- lipopolysaccharide—that's funny, also mm-hmm. called endotoxin, uh, because they initially thought that it was a a toxin that was inside the bacterial wall that was not secreted, and later on they learned that gram-negative bacteria actually secrete this endotoxin into their environment as a way to control the environment around them. The thing is that this LPS gets absorbed into the body. The absorption is greater after meals, especially meals that are quite fatty or have like full of hydrogenated oils um, or even saturated fats. I know people who are keto uh, fans would hate to hear me say this, but they've shown this in studies. Uh, there was one study where they did—they uh, actually uh, took took a group of healthy males, and then they fed them toast with butter and measured their LPS levels before and after. And they saw a big spike in L- in blood LPS levels after having the toast with butter. And it was like 40 grams of butter. So It was a good amount.
0: It was a good bolus. And is it the combination of carbohydrates and fat? Or have they... The fat becomes
1: a almost like a carrier. Um, so I I also found another study that was interesting where they were looking at saturated fats and and their their role with LPS and all that. And it turned out that certain saturated fats can can actually imitate LPS. So they might actually have a, a similar effect as LPS. But for people to understand what LPS does is it binds to a receptor on cells throughout the body. These receptors are found, it's a toll-like receptor 4. It's found in white blood cells. It's found in the liver. It's found in the pancreas, in muscle tissue, in the brain. And when that LPS binds to toll-like receptor 4, it's it's almost like one of those mousetrap trap games, if you've ever seen, like you put the ball in and then it causes all these things to, to change. Basically, it sets up a cascade of events that releases a protein from its bound form. It's called NF-kappa B. And the NF-kappa B is at the bottom of this chain and it's bound to this other protein that has a fancy name. It's called inhibitor of kappa B. <laughs> it's just the inhibitory protein. And once it gets released, NF Kappa B goes to the cell nucleus and activates the expression of genes that produce cytokines, inflammatory signals that are released. And these things are released in all parts of the body, including like muscle, liver. So they're creating like, so that's the tie to what leads to insulin resistance and increase inflammation. So more cytokines, which are also released by fat cells as well. And what they found is that LPS proceeds, so rises in blood LPS will precede weight gain, obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes. So they're all interconnected. And it and it's interesting because for the longest time, I think we we always attributed these diseases to be intrinsic to the body and maybe related to what the person was eating but didn't quite understand that it was also related to the gut microbiome and to leaky gut. So if you have the combination of a an unfavorable microbiome, leaky gut, you're eating a lot of high fats, sugars, inflammatory foods, you're basically setting yourself up to absorb a lot of this lipopolysaccharide that's going to just wreak havoc in different parts of the body. And for different people, depending on your susceptibility, you either gain weight, uh, you develop muscle aches, fatigue, you develop depression, if it's affecting the brain. So it can affect all levels.
0: It's interesting. Do we know what the timeline is for that? Because one of the things that I've noticed is people are very good with when there's something that's very, uh, we'll, we'll say, chronologically linked so you have something and then a couple maybe an hour later 2 hours later you're like gosh I don't feel so good it must be that thing that I ate but when it's 2 or 3 or 4 days later we're not thinking about the cheese or the what you know whatever whatever it is the the tortilla with the you know whatever whatever setting it off um where we see this uncoupling, like you were saying, with the endotoxin inhibitor and the endotoxin, and then it has this ability to systemically affect um, these inflammatory, these pro-inflammatory pathways. What is the timeline for that? Because I think that that would be a huge clue for people to, even if you're keeping some sort of food journal, to be able to look back, because gosh, if you ask me what I ate, you know, we're recording. Um, If you ask me what I ate on the weekend, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I wouldn't be able to tell you what I had on Saturday or Sunday, let's say. Yeah.
1: For anybody who's experiencing things like this or or things that seem like you can never put your finger on like why is this happening and you're trying to think like, well, I had a green smoothie this morning. Why do I feel horrible? But you're not thinking about what you had for dinner the night before, right? It's like you said, it's it's hard to remember what you did 3 days ago. So the best thing you can do is get keep a food mood and poop journal where you write down what you ate, how you're feeling, what are your symptoms, and how often are you pooping cuz pooping is really important part of this equation. And then look for the patterns. You know, you want to tease out the patterns. And what really trips people up is when you're you're basically, you know, and I talk about this in the book like becoming intuitive about your eating, like knowing What is it that your body craves? How are you feeling while you eat? And how do you feel after you eat? But then that post-meal intuition can run a couple of days, right? Because something you ate on Sunday, if you have a food sensitivity, could be affecting you on Tuesday. And it could be also something you drank. You know, So it doesn't only have to be the food, it could be the alcohol. But it's hard to recall these things. And the body is a big trickster, so it doesn't have to do the same thing every time you know so that also trips people up because they think well i ate this a week ago and i felt fine but then i ate it again this weekend and then i didn't feel so good but that's where keeping a journal is really important because then you can start to tease out what you're teasing out is the pattern repetitions and even if there are interruptions in the pattern you also have to think that food sensitivities work in the level of thresholds. So it could be that you're okay with once a week exposure, but the minute you have a second exposure to that same food, you're not going to feel so great. Because now your antibodies have been activated, and just getting that re-exposure is what then causes the symptoms. So it might be a threshold issue where you just have to get past that threshold of exposure. And certain foods, you might have that. Some foods have a very low threshold. For a celiac, They can, they can't have any cross contamination with wheat or they're going to feel sick and they can, it can take them two weeks to recover from just a small exposure, small um, cross contamination. But other people have a much higher tolerance level before that gets tripped up.
0: Yeah. And that, that continuum makes a lot of sense. Well, even in the context of a food allergy, which is separate and distinct from what we're talking about here, you can have a mild allergy, you can have an anaphylactic an- allergy, right? And then there's everything in between that, you know, that's on that, that's on that continuum. Uh, and it's interesting. I think that that's very interesting too, because you can have sort of these subclinical activations where there's no symptoms that you can easily discern or distinguish. Um, maybe yeah. one exposure is fine, but then three exposures in that same week is not is not so great. Um, so that it's it's really about sussing out that pattern because it could also be like the food combination, the uh, like the amount of the bolus, like how much you actually consumed. Yeah, also how stressed
1: you are when you ate right. those foods. You know what else is happening in your life at that moment? Did you not get enough sleep? We know that lack, like not getting a full night's rest, is going to also increase. Uh, inflammation it's going to activate that inflammatory pathway so it depends on what your baseline inflammation is at and what are the other triggers that are added on top of that
0: yeah i am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery heart health Let's talk a little bit about stress, because I think stress is sort of this nebulous term. Um, I talk a lot about it in the context of perimenopausal women and being able to manage sort of the oscillating sex hormones and the changes in our concentrations of sex hormones as we navigate our 40s and our 50s. Talk about how stress and we want to distinguish between eustress and distress, right? So good stress, bad stress, Um, how that can affect the microbiome.
1: Big effects. I mean, first of all, I call stress an attack on the gut. Because when you're stressed, it's charging up those catecholamines. And I'm just, you know, when you mention a, a perimenopausal or menopausal woman, I always think of, and I know this is generalizing, that not everybody out there would be this, but a lot of perimenopausal women are going to have had kids. And the kids are maybe early teens. So, you know, the house can be, the household can be a bit stressful. Then their hormones are starting to go out of whack. Their their teens are going into puberty. They're going through perimenopause, you know, and they're trying to do a lot of things, right? They're juggling maybe their professional life with being a mom, with also being a wife, you know, and I know again, I'm stereotyping because there's a lot of different permutations in our world now, of this, but it can be a very stressful time for a woman. And that raises your cortisol levels. And when your cortisol is high, it's also going to affect the makeup of the gut microbiome and you can start seeing shifts. So now you've got high cortisol shifting the gut microbiome, you have high stress causing increase in gut permeability. A lot of times when there's high stress, you lose vagal tone. Vagus is, is the mo- probably the most important nerve in terms of controlling what's happening in the gut, the entire digestive system, it's the longest nerve in the body. It's it, they call it a cranial nerve. It originates from the brain and it innervates all the internal organs. And when you're stressed, you shut off that vagus. That vagus needs to be sending just kind of like uh, pings every once in a while, just keeping the 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 dial tone going down to the gut and. When people are in this chronic state of stress, their vagal tone drops. Now, you may not know, you know, you're thinking, well, how do I know if my vagal tone is is down? Like, what does that mean? Well, but you do know things that happen in your body. Like, you lose your appetite. You feel like you have a pit in your stomach. When you eat, the food just sits there. It makes you feel sick. These are things that people experience when they're stressed. You get constipated, or you start feeling a bit moody, or you start feeling kind of low down depressed, these are all signs of low vagal tone, as well, even uh, weight gain, things like that, because the vagus also from a top down, controls gut permeability. Just interesting, because there's a lot of different controls on gut permeability, obviously locally in the gut, it's being affected by the makeup of the gut microbiome, exposure to antibiotics, exposure to sugar, artificial sweeteners alcohol you know all sorts of processed foods but it's also being controlled by from the top down through the vagus nerve and that can really disrupt the system so high cortisol loss in vagal tone that leads to increased gut permeability shifts in the gut microbiome that then make you less stress resilient
0: and so how does that how does that change behavior so i know sometimes there there's been uh, and we can maybe talk about some of these rat studies where they've done uh, fecal transplants and it's completely changed the behavior, even just the the hunger drive, like the, their eating patterns and their drive. So if you have, if you're in this hypercortisolemic state, so, you know, uh, you mentioned all of the, you know, the food sits in your stomach like a brick. Uh, I always, you know, the first time that I had a really big speaking event, I was so nervous. I thought I was going to throw up. Like I felt... So this like yeah. need to sort of evacuate, right? Either from the top or the bottom, right? So it's like, I need yeah. to go to the bathroom or I need to throw up like that kind of very, uh, and in my case, it was, I was, it was very acute. I was getting on stage in five or 10 minutes and I couldn't, you know, couldn't, my, my throat was dry, like my mouth was dry, all the things. How does that hypercortisolemic state drive behavioral change? So when we have this high cortisol state, you mentioned that we start changing now, the, uh, maybe the composition or the activity or activation of certain bacteria in the gut. How does that now drive behavior change in the individual?
1: Well, it can, it can, it can either be top down or, or bottom up, you know, in different directions. So high cortisol can also alter the ecosystem in a way that there's more yeast in the gut and yeast is going to hijack the brain and make you crave sugar. Now you might also, when you're stressed, want to go for that glass of wine once the kids are in bed or once you know the day is you're unwinding from the day and that's more sugar for the brain but also sugar for the gut and what do stress people do they go for ice cream they go for the comfort foods the mashed potatoes the the chips you know that's that's the the late night cravings and they just keep you in that that vicious cycle
0: and then you're selecting for those bacteria that now by the
1: do, by the yeah. foods that you eat, you're you're actually promoting those bacteria that are then keeping you locked in that state, you know, which can be really difficult. Like, how do you dig yourself out of that that mm-hmm. particular state and find a way out? And sometimes it just involves you've got you've got to get to that point where you. Don't stand it anymore. Like you don't want to be that way anymore, and you might have to go through a couple of days of discomfort, especially if you're really high sugar craver, uh, because you've got to battle those internal sugar cravings. But there's a lot of things that can be done. Like uh, I talk about switches in the book. Like how do you how do you deal with the late night cravings that we've all had? I'm I'm guilty of that. Like rating. You know, even though I'm gluten-free, I'll go for the gluten-free cookies late at night. And But how do you do it in a way that is healthier for you and for the brain? What I've learned is that the brain doesn't really want sugar. It just wants the sensation of sweet, you know, in that moment. So it could be that you have a fruit instead, an orange or some berries, strawberries, And that's the substitute that's giving your brain, it's not as strong of a hit as grabbing that, you know, bag of Oreo cookies or whatever, but it's giving your brain kind of what it needs. And then usually, you know, when people, when there's a lot of sugar cravings, I always go back to self care. Cause if you take a moment to, you know, like what you were just describing, like you're, you're feeling you're about to go on stage, you're super nervous, your vagus nerve is shut off, you're feeling nauseous, feels like things are just gonna reverse themselves. Like, what could you do in that moment? And this is for I any usually moment.
0: breathe, I usually breathe. Yeah, yeah. yeah I
1: was gonna say b- breathe. And, mm-hmm. and actually, uh, what I teach people is to put one hand on the belly and one hand on the chest, mm-hmm. and then take a breath, but let the breath originate from the hand that's on the belly first.
0: Oh, that's good for women because women are always sort of sucking in their stomachs, right? They're we always, always hold our bellies, yeah.
1: Anytime I ask a patient to show me how they breathe, they they usually, I mean, my camera's up, but I'll, they they're usually like this. They'll go.
0: Yeah, it's, the know, upper, and their it's shoulders all the accessory muscles and, of respiration. You know, they're
1: yeah. they're they're breathing all up here. But yeah. that style of breathing will make you look good in a photo, but it's not gonna help you feel calm when you're feeling super stressed. You actually have to reverse it and breathe like a baby. Because babies know how to breathe. They breathe with their bellies first. So big yeah. in- inhale, the diaphragm, and then you and then second part of the inhale is the chest. And then you reverse it on the way out. You exhale up here and exhale here. And I love using the hands on the body to teach people because I think adding that extra sensation really helps people get embodied, like really anchor into your body and, and just feel where the breath is supposed to be. Because when you breathe with your diaphragm, you're activating those stretch receptors in the lungs that then send a signal through the vagus nerve, activate the vagus nerve, and get you into more of that parasympathetic rest and relax and digest mode.
0: Wonderful. And I'll also say that when you are only breathing, as you just demonstrated with sort of the accessory respiratory muscles, like you're overworking the sternocleidomastoid, you're working the scalenes, you're going to wreck your posture. (laughs) I'm also just going to say, you're going to just have everything flexed forward because these, you know, anterior neck muscles are going to become so tight from like lifting and lowering the rib cage and not allowing the diaphragmatic breathing that you're describing that we're going to also get this like sort of hunched over posture. I mean, I've seen it over and over again. Most people actually don't, particularly women, don't breathe well because we were always taught to like suck in the belly, but it's actually a softening of the belly and an expansion of the belly is where all your power is, right? So I love uh, yeah. love that um, uh, description that you gave. Let's talk a little bit about soil and dirt. Um, and actually before we before we started recording, I was actually picking my nails because I was gardening. I was just fixing my little, my little seedlings that are now starting to grow for the season. Um, how does, uh, soil and dirt, um, help our microbiome and, um, maybe touch on the problem of being too clean. Talk specifically about soil and dirt. What is good about getting dirty, you know, getting our hands dirty literally, um, and figuratively for the microbiome.
1: Well, ideally, you're, you're playing in the dirt in soil that's organic, that doesn't have any pesticide residues, no toxins. Then that type of soil is really good for magnifying the diversity of your gut microbiome. And this I really came to appreciate from, again, going back to my experience with the Hadza who are out in the wild. They are getting their hands dirty. They're digging into the dirt. They're getting those root vegetables. There is no soap. They, there's no concept of hand washing there other than, you know, like washing with just water. And they're incredibly robust and healthy. And they have no diabetes, no heart disease, no cancer, no metabolic syndrome, no obesity. And their gut microbiome that they've actually studied is quite diverse. And I think one of the reasons is this exposure to nature and to the wild, to the, to the dirt, because it, they're not eating the rainbow as we hear a lot in functional medicine. Like, oh, eat the rainbow and that's going to give you the most diverse gut microbiome. Well, the Hadza are eating root vegetables. They're brown and white. They're eating Wild berries, which are not very bright colored, they're kind of a muted color compared to the the berries that we buy in the supermarket. They're eating wild honey, so that's kind of like a yellow amber. They're eating baobab fruit, another brown, uh, brown, brownish white. And then they're eating animals. And that's their diet. It's not a very color uh, varied diet. It's not a rainbow of mm-hmm. fruits and vegetables. And yet they still have a really diverse gut microbiome. And I think it's because of the exposure to the soil. And we know children raised in farms now, I'll be like, let's say, an organic farm without pesticides, all that, they're going to be more resilient in terms of having less allergies, less atopic disease than someone who was raised in the city and, and you know, using hand sanitizer and really. We have to be so careful with that because there is a natural microbiome in our hands that is protective. It's part of the same way that you can develop leaky gut. You can also develop a leaky skin barrier and you, and you've probably seen this in some people who develop eczema, psoriasis, uh, cracks in their hands. I knew a doctor when I was in my training that washed his hands so often that his hands were pink red and full of
0: cracks cracked yes i had a same intern there was an intern when i was an intern there was someone who was so i'll call it germaphobe uh she was washing her hands all the time that her knuckles were red and cracked i remember and she was always slathering them with hand moisturizer and vaseline couldn't keep couldn't keep uh couldn't keep it together
1: and it's it's because of the loss of the the hand microbiome from all the washing, you can actually wash it off. And that microbiome is part of the resilience of our bodies. It's so important both on us, inside us, in our airways, in our mouth, inside our gut, to have the right type of balanced microbiome that then keeps our our skin, our insides, our airways, all of that healthy. Because I think people need to realize that we are super organisms. We're not just, you know, you think you're just yourself, but you're more than just yourself. You're you plus the hundreds of trillions of organisms that are living on and inside your body. That's who you are.
0: Sometimes I think, you know, when you think about the genes of humans, what is it, 20,000, something like that. And then if you were to look at Let's say the genes that encode uh, the microbiome. It's like, are we just but containers? <laughs> you know, like who's running the show? Are we running the show, or is the microbiome? You know, the with all the diversity, with all the different species um, that we host. Um, you know, who who's who's uh, who's running who? And and
1: really, to be as as healthy as possible, you you really want a very healthy and robust microbiome.
0: So is it diversity then? Like, is it diversity that we're, you know, this, e- I've heard, I've heard, and I've spoken about eating the rainbow, um, as well. And I'm not convinced anymore that that's, that's, that we, we should be eating like the purples and the greens and the reds and the yellows and the, all the, all the different colors. Like I certainly do eat a lot of colors because I do enjoy, uh, I do enjoy yeah. them, but there's certain foods that I don't like that are healthy it's- that I stay away from. It's not the only avenue
1: as, as I think the Hadza are a great example of that, yeah. but diversity is the holy grail. I do believe that. And I based that on just what I've seen in a couple of studies. And again, going back to that Stanford study where they looked at a high fiber diet versus a high fermented foods diet, mm-hmm. the high fiber diet, which you would equate to eating the rainbow, like lots of plants, like different types of plants. I thought that that was going to be the winner. That was the one that was going to cause create the greatest change in microbial diversity. So they were looking at Mm -hmm. diversity before and after. They had a four-week ramp-up, six weeks of eating high-fiber, high-fermented foods, and then another seven weeks where they let the participants kind of choose their way, like just kind of continue eating but not as strictly, and they checked them before and after. And the high-fiber group did not have any dramatic increase in microbial diversity. It was the fermented foods group that increased microbial diversity. And and you almost think that's counterintuitive because when when people are eating a pickle or a sauerkraut, you know, lacto-fermented, there's going to be like one or two predominant bacteria. Maybe if you have a kefir, it's going to be more, but it's not a lot Of bacteria that are going to create diversity but what they found is that it seems and this is again understanding this is a complex ecosystem so those bacteria are coming in to the gut of the person in the fermented food and they are producing these postbiotic nutrients that then feed and support the growth of all these other bacteria so becomes this they're, they're, it's almost like a rising tide floats all boats. The, the more good organisms that you have in there from these fermented foods, the more they support other good organisms in there. And thus the, the fermented foods group had the highest increase in microbial diversity. Now, why do we even care? Like, why, why would, why would it matter? The reason is the second piece to what they were checking. They looked at 19 inflammatory markers including like normal blood markers but also they looked at things like macrophage activation um, through cytokines so they were looking at like down to even innate immunity and how that was either activated or deactivated by this and they found that the fermented foods group had a drop in 19 different inflammatory markers just from eating more fermented foods. Now the high fiber group didn't exactly show that, but when they, they actually decided to look at the fiber rich group and see are there differences in the microbial diversity and they divided them into three groups, high, moderate and low diversity. And they found that the group that started with the highest microbial diversity, when they looked at the effect of fiber, it actually modulated their immune response and reduced immune activation. Whereas the group with the lowest microbial diversity, when introduced, when the high fiber diet was introduced, it actually activated their immune system. It did the opposite.
0: Okay, stop right there for a second. So we have a group of people in the, so a subclass in this fiber group. So people who had more diversity to start off with, we saw an attenuation of immune function yeah. We see a yeah. lowering of immune function. And so yeah,
1: you could call it immuno immune modulation or immune regulation. Like if it, it was able to downregulate parts of the immune system that were upregulated.
0: Okay, so we're bringing down inflammation. So that's still is that that's still a good thing? Or are we making the immune system? It's still
1: good. It's still a good thing. It's still a good thing. Because I think if you look at the Western world, the most disease, chronic diseases in the Western world are due to Overactivation of the immune system, yeah. too much inflammation, the immune system not shutting off—you know—all the autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's, all that is an example.
0: And then, so for those who had a low diversity to start off, giving them more fiber yeah. was able to bring up their immune. It seemed like
1: activity. it activated the immune system. Yeah.
0: Okay. And do we know if it was activated in a positive or a negative way? Was it overactivation of macrophages and the or we're we're not clear.
1: I don't think they were looking at that. They were looking at changes to see well what's happening with the immune you know with the immune system, but not really looking to see well is this having a negative effect or positive effect on the person. You know yeah. I think what they should have done that they didn't do in this study is they should have had a third group. So they should have had a high fermented, high fiber, and then just a normal like healthy eating group, but not without an emphasis on either. And then I would, if I were to do it again, I would actually add a fourth group to the study that would have a high fiber and high fermented foods diet.
0: Mm -hmm. You need to look at the immune function. So if you're seeing this change, so this immunomodulation that you're describing, either it's increasing or it's decreasing to what degree and to what extent and what's being modulated? Are we seeing changes in macrophage activation, cytokines, interleukin, like what's happening? I think that yeah. that's a big, big question.
1: And we yeah. know with the fermented foods group that we had drops in interleukins, all that. Which are
0: typically pro-inflammatory. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the bottom line is fermented foods are going to, from at least from this study, but they're Sounds like there needs to be a little bit more inquiry. Is that there needs to be more um, fermented foods, let's say, or consumption of fermented foods? So the sauerkraut, the miso, the kefir, the yogurts, uh, things like of, of that nature, that are going to increase microbial diversity. That's the that's sort of the ticket. It's fiber is going to increase it. It seems like somewhat, but the real golden ticket, if you will, is the fermented food, like the consumption of fermented yeah. foods.
1: I mean, the other comment on it is it's possible that the study wasn't long enough to tease out the effect of fiber that maybe the fiber group needed more time to show mm-hmm. shifts in microbial diversity than, and than then the what fermented- what kind of fiber?
0: Group. Is it soluble fiber, insoluble fiber? What combination?
1: Fiber was it? Yeah, yeah. Combination of both. But the, the other thing that I think is important here is to also realize that it's probably not one or the other. And uh, the reason that I wrote my book, The Gut Smart Protocol, is that it's not a one size fits all. And even though we know that fermented foods are good, someone who has severe gut dysfunction, they're not gonna be able to tolerate fermented foods. And that's why I created the quiz that divides people into severe, moderate, and mild in my book. So then you can know, well, what is right for me to eat based on my gut type at this moment? Because I heard fermented foods are good. I should be incorporating fermented foods to lower my inflammation. But now I took the Gut Smart quiz and I tested severe and it says no fermented foods. Yeah, because your gut is not ready for that yet. We've got to do some gut healing before we can start to introduce fermented foods and you're and once you do you're only dipping your toes you know so this is again another place we were talking about that like it's not an all or nothing (laughs) it's it's more like something and a little to start it's a dial
0: it's not a switch
1: yeah you slowly you slowly dial it up but you don't want to start too high because you've got to let your gut get used to it
0: So fermented foods and fiber, these are going to be cornerstones to some degree, depending of course on severity, duration, uh, of the gut dysfunction. What are some other, uh, parameters would you say that are, you know, I know that there's no ideal diet for everyone, but when we're thinking about this in the context of microbial diversity and opt, you know, and, and optimizing gut function, what are some other things that we want to be considering that we're, that we're consuming on a regular basis, um, in our diet.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are the top two I would say for improving microbial diversity, but you gotta think of other things that I call gut disruptors that can be really problematic for a lot of people. And I'm sure people hate hearing me say this, but alcohol, alcohol is a big gut disruptor. And if you've got moderate or severe, especially gut dysfunction, You've got to knock out alcohol if you want to really heal your body and heal the gut because the alcohol is causing dysbiosis. uh, So it's causing imbalances in the gut microbiome that are not good. And it's also promoting leaky gut.
0: You know, I'm, I'm finding it harder. I'm finding it harder and harder and harder to justify any consumption of alcohol. The more people I talk to, you know, whether you are thinking about hormone optimization, body recomposition, weight loss, and now gut microbiome, it really does seem like it is just terrible for you. Like there's no upside.
1: It is the enemy of all that. And and I've known many people have done, you know, they do the diet. They're like, they're being perfect. and But they're in that diet mentality where they're like, well, I'm going to reward myself on the weekend. And I'm going to have, right. you know, I'm just going to go and have a glass of wine. But that one glass of wine, they're like, well, I have one. I might, you know, I could have another. I'm out with friends and and then it turns to 2 and then it's two nights out of the week so and and they think like just doing that on the weekend is not going to disrupt their health goals and their gut but it doesn't take a lot to basically magnify and cause a problem that lasts the entire week with the gut especially with alcohol dairy is a big one too for a lot of people and i know dairy is nuanced and and mixed but such a big part of the world population is lactose intolerant. So just the way that dairy is prepared, and depending on the type of dairy, you might be lactose intolerant, not be able to tolerate the, depending on the cheese, you know, cheeses that are not aged, or even just having cream, a little bit of cream in your coffee and you think it's not a lot. But if you're also dairy sensitive and you're sensitive to some of the dairy proteins, then that's going to be a, a big disruptor in the healing journey. It's also one of the biggest causes of constipation in women is dairy, dairy of all sorts.
0: All right. So we have some parameters for optimizing um, the diet. Let's just in the extreme example, let's say that someone, you know, the we were talking earlier at the top of our conversation around these seven, seven wonders, <laughs> or like, you know, the seven categories of um, leaky gut let's say that someone has persistent skin issues and or persistent immune issues brain issues when would yeah. someone ever consider let's say a transplant like a fecal fecal matter transplant is there ever you know if, if they take your gut quiz let's say and it's severe um, when would when would someone ever consider that as an option for them
1: well, Let's let's just start by the fact that it's still not approved for a lot of indications yet. But just got approved for C. diff, which is an infection that happens in the colon and is a consequence of having been on antibiotics. So now that can be treated with a fecal transplant. But there are a lot of other things that are being done experimentally in other parts of the world, even like London, the Bahamas, where you can go to clinic. And you can get fecal transplant if you have Crohn's colitis or ulcerative colitis in those inflammatory bowel conditions. It seems that it can have a positive effect. The places where I think we still need to see if it's going to, if we can validate and, you know, replicate these results. I've known of people with food sensitivities who have done through someone who offers fecal transplant pills, so encapsulated fecal matter from a healthy donor, and they claim that it has reversed their wheat sensitivity, that now they can have gluten and it doesn't cause a problem. Now, my answer to that would be, well, let's test for wheat antibodies, let's look at wheat metabolite antibodies, let's look at zonulin antibodies, let's look for evidence of leaky gut, it may be that it reduced it below threshold, but let's be scientific about it and look and at the data and see is it really, you know, is you not feeling the macro effects? Is that also a sign that the micro effects have been fixed by taking these fecal transplant pills? That's yet to be seen, but maybe that is coming in the future.
0: Well, the other thing, you know, you said, uh, from a healthy donor and, you know, sort of tripped in my head, like, well, where are you going to find the healthy donor? (laughs) You know, it's like the Hasda, like, you know, maybe it's just, do do we take it? It's got to be someone who hasn't been,
1: yeah, it's not been on a lot of antibiotics or hasn't been on antibiotics. The, the other place I want to mention actually, because this is kind of, uh, big in that arena. I'm not, I'm not a pediatrician, but in the autism community, there's, um, you know, a slowly growing use of these alternative techniques, including fecal transplant capsules, because there's such a big connection between the gut and the brain. The gut, in that's autism. right.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, so, I, I mean, my original line of thinking is like, gosh, you have all these, it, we're all living in this sort of modern world with all of these assaults, let's say uh, onto our microbiome, like persistent um, antibiotic use, for example. And in the same way that, you know, our mitochondria, we get it from our mothers, you know, our microbiome, if you've, if you've been delivered, if you've had a vaginal birth, like you start your microbiome in the birth canal, right? So you, as the, as you're going through the birth canal, we have the contractions that are happening that for like when the contraction releases, the baby will take in some of the vaginal microbiome and it's our lineage, right? It's like, it's, it's worth fighting for. It's worth protecting our microbiome. um, Because, you know, I I feel like it's our lineage. I feel like it's something that, you know, as you as you describe in the book has all of these different offshoots into the brain and brain metabolism and mood and behavior and skin and immune function and, you know, our metabolism, our ability to lose weight, like it's so so important, and I, I just want to um, I want to thank you for your time um, today because I think that this has been really eye opening for me. I've had a really I've learned a lot from you, and I think it 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 gives pause for thought in terms of how all you know our environment, internal and external, how that impacts um, the microbiome.
1: Yeah, I think we have to be really conscious of protecting the microbiome from birth all the way to adulthood and into our older years. Uh, because when you look at the microbiome of centenarians, what distinguishes their microbiome is its ability to ward off inflammation. So basically turn off inflammation, not overactivate uh, yeah. the body's inflammatory pathways. And so the key is to seek to foster microbial diversity, to stay off of antibiotics as much as you can, and only use them when they're required, because antibiotics also save lives. So I'm not saying that all antibiotics are bad at every moment, but understanding that even a good antibiotic that is used to save your life or to treat an infection that could be life-threatening will have a consequence And that consequence needs to be addressed by doing things that are going to then recreate microbial diversity in the gut with the things that we talked about. And then getting out into nature, it reduces stress, but it also helps to expand and diversify the gut microbiome as well. So if you can have a garden and get your hands, I was doing that also this weekend. I had to put on the gloves because uh, for a moment, because I was trying to Prune my rose bush without gloves, and I learned very quickly that that is not a good idea because <laughs> those thorns are serious. But getting, you know, I was planting herbs and, and you know fixing the garden, and by the end, my my hands were full of dirt, and I had dirt under my fingernails, just like you said you had. Mm. Uh, but it's it's like the best thing, and if you know it's your garden and you know where the soil came from, and it's organic soil then by all means, let yourself be exposed to it. It's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, when we hear about those food poisonings and things that's happening from mass uh, agriculture, where there might be runoff from cow fields, and, you know, there's other things that go into that.
0: And so where can we find the gut? So the gut smart protocol is now I'm assuming it's Wherever you bu- buy books, the gut quiz is everywhere. In there, so we- yeah. It's everywhere. Okay. So tell us where we can find you and where we can find the quiz and all the good things.
1: Yeah. Um, you can learn more about me if you go to gutsmartprotocol.com. And actually, you can take the quiz for free there. You can, uh, it's at the very top of the page. Take the quiz. And uh, I'm just like you, very active on Instagrams. So you can follow me at Dr. Pedre and I'm always trying to edutain, put out uh, educational content that also entertains and, you know, hopefully gets people to even just make one tiny health behavior shift that's going to make a big difference in their lives.
0: So beautiful yeah and your your instagram is is a lot of fun i enjoy i enjoy some of the reels that you put together so well done on that
1: i've got some funny ones coming
0: <laughs> awesome awesome thank you so much uh dr Pedro it's been wonderful chatting to you and we'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes for my uh, for my listeners for my bettys to get their hands on your book and take the quiz and figure out how we can increase our diversity and health of our microbiome thank you
1: thank you for having me